everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Psalm 113. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. John chapter 6, verses 35 to 51 from the NIV Bible. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there <clears throat> began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, this is not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread, that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world.
sometimes you can read a passage of scripture and something really jumps out at you, engaging your attention very forcefully. And that was the case when I read Psalm 130, which we read earlier. It seems to encapsulate many important themes within its eight short verses. The psalm begins where many people do. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Many people only turn to God in a crisis. It's often been said that there are no atheists on a battlefield. This was probably never more true than in the horrors of the First World War. But many of the returning soldiers did not find the same engagement with God possible in the churches of the day. And church attendance has been declining ever since. The church then did not seem to have much to say of relevance to what men had been through on the battlefields of northern France. But that's perhaps another story for another day. The writer of this psalm also clearly knew difficult times, for he was crying out of the depths. The language of the psalm suggests it may have been from the post-exilic period. The people of Israel had been carted off into exile in 586 BC and were there for 70 long years. Psalm 137 reminds how the people had wept by the rivers of Babylon. Eventually, they had returned, but Jerusalem and the temple were wrecked, and despite rebuilding, would never be quite the same again. This disaster was now part of the folk memory, not to be forgotten. The psalm became one of the songs of ascents, as they're called, that were regularly used as people made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That they should be reminded that they could cry out to God from the depths is very reassuring. Whatever the depths we may be in, anxiety, illness, relationship breakdown, loneliness, financial hardship, an intractable problem that seems to have no obvious solution, a letdown by someone we trusted and thought we could rely upon, addiction, whether to substance or certain behaviours, whatever the depths we may be in, we can cry out to God with confidence that he will hear. The psalmist continues, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive, to my cry for mercy. And this gives us another insight. This is a penitential psalm, one of seven in the book of Psalms. That is to say, the writer is acknowledging his failings, that he needs God's mercy. He's not demanding his rights, that would be a baseless vanity, <clears throat> but saying, God, I'm in a mess, I need your mercy. To approach God in some other way might beg the question, why are you approaching him anyway if you think you're so righteous or if you think you can order God about? Then in the next <clears throat> couplet, and the psalm is arranged in four couplets in two pairs, and in the next he gives us an assurance that our approach to God will not be in vain. We won't be ruled out. Verses three and four. 
If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Our sin is not going to be a problem. God will forgive and forget. It echoes Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Most of us are good at remembering offences against ourselves, but we should not put that characteristic on God. He really does forgive. He wipes the slate clean. Micah 7 verse, verse 19 reminds us, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God can do this, and he does. And where the psalmist concludes that God is feared, I think that carries with it the idea that God is to be honoured, worshipped, trusted, and served. So wherever we are, we can call out to God whether we are in the depths or riding on the crest of the waves. We may be on the move, as the pilgrims were who used this psalm. Or we may be in the same old place we've been for a long time, locked down or free. But the key to it all is repentance. We can be deceived into thinking that if we try a bit harder, we can live holier lives. And much of the message of the church seems to be that. But the key is repentance, acknowledging that we are not perfect, that we can't justify ourselves. Rather, we need God's mercy. To put it theologically, repentance comes before sanctification. We won't be made holy without first repenting. It's only God who can make us holy. The psalmist can rest upon this fact. He can be assured of God's mercy and forgiveness. We don't hear so much these days of the doctrine of assurance, but it's an important one that's been dear to the hearts of the people called Methodists from the origins of the movement. Now, sadly, I fear a little neglected. John Wesley preached that all need to be saved, all can be saved. All can be assured of their salvation, and all can be saved to the uttermost. The psalmist, having clarified his position before God, that God is merciful and forgiving, as to, and is to be honoured and worshipped, then is able to move on into the second half of the psalm, in which he encourages himself to wait, which in turn leads to hope. This psalm is full of practical theology. <clears throat> I remember my local preaching tutor saying, there's nothing so practical as a good theology. This psalm assures us that we can cry out to God, even in the most difficult of times. He gives us confidence that we can do so, whatever our circumstances or past behaviours. And in this next couplet, he encourages patience. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, 
more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. As a society, we've needed patience over the last 18 months while the pandemic has been handled through the various approaches tried and needed. History may judge the effectiveness of each, but many have struggled to be patient and to forego things. Booking foreign holidays when there was no certainty as to whether they might have to return early or face self-isolation or expensive quarantine. And sometimes the hope that it would be okay has proved to be unfounded. But hope built on God's word has a sure foundation. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is an instant age where things are expected now. The microwave age, you can have it in only five minutes. But if we look how the psalmist waits, and for him it's an intense waiting, a longing even, and it's not an aimless waiting, for he says, in his word, I put my hope. Hope is such an important mindset. I read of some research a while ago where men who had had a heart attack were studied. Various technical measurements were taken, such as blood pressure, cholesterol, and the like. But they were also assessed for their hopefulness of making a good recovery. Then at the end of five years, they were followed up. Some had died, and those still living were reassessed for their medical condition. The researchers could then see which of the original factors were the best indicator of what would actually happen to the men over the ensuing five years. And the best predictor of future health proved to be the men's degree of hopefulness. The more hopeful they were, the more likely they were to survive and to do well. And this proved to be more important than blood pressure, cholesterol, or anything else. So being hopeful is good for you. And the psalmist is more than hopeful in some vague or general sense. He has chosen to put his hope in God's word. The Bible is God's word, and it's more than a set of instructions. Rather, it's God's progressive revelation of himself. So putting our hope in it is to engage with God himself and to let him shake our, shape our thinking and indeed our being. The psalmist is clearly convinced of the benefit of, benefit of this, for the last of the four couplets begins wanting the whole nation to follow his example. O oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. And he gives good reason for it. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. So we're back to the earlier theme. There is forgiveness. There is redemption. Your past does not need to have the final word. Now, Jesus is described as the word of God. So we have even more reason to be hopeful than the psalmist did. For him and the people of his day, full redemption was hundreds of years off in the future when Christ would come. 
And in our reading from John's Gospel, we hear Jesus clearly declaring that he has come from God and that those who listen to the Father and learn from him come to Jesus. And the result of coming to Jesus, believing in him, is that we have everlasting life. This is full redemption. It concerns me that these days there seems to be a growing belief that when you die, you go to heaven, full stop. <clears throat> but the basis for this belief is rarely stated. And I should fear that many people are in for a shock. But Jesus is clear. Come to me and I will never drive you away. We may never know exactly where someone else stands in relation to God. But questions of eternal importance merit more than a vague assumption that all will be well while never actually coming to Jesus. Job bemoans the fact that people say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? On the other side of the coin, St. Paul addresses his first letter to the Corinthians, to them and to all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Positive decision and action on our part is required if we are to have grounds for hope, not a vague assumption that all will be well. The psalmist was on a journey and in Psalm 130, it began in despair. Out of the depths, he cried to God, but ended with assurance that God would deliver his people from all their sins. Movement was needed, reminding us that we need to move, coming to God first in repentance, and then being made holy, sanctified by him. So, our assured destination is heaven. And as I saw it put recently, faith will be overtaken by sight and death swallowed up by life. Amen. my redeemer
content in this podcast is adapted from recorded Zoom services held by Teambridge Methodist Circuit Coastal Section. Full videos can be viewed on their YouTube channel. Music is taken from worship audio tracks, all rights reserved.